But this morning, we're continuing in the series, and we're going to look at uh, the title of this morning's message, which is No Longer Slaves But Free. You might have caught that from the songs we sang or from your booklet, but No Longer Slaves Free. And as I was thinking through which passage to use this morning, I end up in quite a few places in the Bible. In fact, the more that I looked for this theme of freedom to slavery or slavery to freedom, uh, I found it all over the Bible. So there's references to freedom from slavery all over the New Testament, found in Romans, Galatians, 1 Peter, Ephesians, many other places. There's also the Old Testament where we see freedom from slavery in the story of Jacob and Laban. We see instructions regarding slaves in Leviticus. We see the story of Joseph and Potiphar, many, many others. In all this, I wrestled through what to choose as like a main passage to go through this morning. Um, But after thinking through it more, I ended up landing on uh, going back to probably the most memorable or famous example of slavery in the Bible. Caleb uh, mentioned it last night, and that's the exodus from Egypt. And in order to go through the passage I'm going to go through this morning, there first needs to be some, some context set. And so I'm going to do something a little different in reading the passage this morning. What I want to do... Uh, everybody's going to need to turn on their imagination or turn on their brains this morning. Uh, And what you're going to do is you're going to transport with me, we're all mentally transporting about 3,000 years uh, back to Egypt, okay? Is everybody there? I want to make sure everyone's there. Okay. So you and your family have been enslaved in Egypt your entire life. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is cruel, and he forces you and everyone you know to endure hard labor. You've built cities. You've done all kinds of field work your whole life. And in fact, this has been the daily reality of your entire existence and for all Israelites over the last 430 years. Over time, you've grown weary in your slavery and constant work, but you really don't have an end in sight. So Egypt's powerful, far more powerful than you are, And you fully expect that the entire existence of your life will be being born, living, and dying a slave with no hope of anything different. Well, this is your reality. But then one day, you start hearing uh, through the rumor mill and uh, among the Israelites at that point about this guy named Moses. You hear that uh, this Moses has been standing up to Pharaoh and some people seem to be positive about him. They say, hey, he's fighting on our behalf. And they're excited about it. But others are saying, no, he's just making things worse for us. As your quotas have increased, you're now working far more than you were working before. And so you don't really know what to think. One day you're walking and you see in the distance a crowd has formed around this guy. And you realize that's Moses. So you run over there to hear what is, what is he saying. And you hear him say, um, You hear him say some things like that God has promised freedom for you. You think, that's that's interesting. You hear him say that God has promised that he'll take you as his own people, that he'll bring you out of Egypt. But you start to wonder, where has this God been the last 430 years? Where has he been my whole life? And so you join in everyone else, and you walk away from Moses. You write him off. You say, he's just another revolutionary. And you think that's the end of the story. Well, then one day you wake up, you're hustling to start your day, uh, get ready, go to work. And you go outside and you smell just an awful smell. 
you look and you realize that the Nile River, the river that you're depending on, that all of your family is depending on, that all of Egypt is depending on, has turned into blood. You think, what in the world is going on? And then you hear, again, from some more people, they said, Moses stood before Pharaoh and said that it would turn to blood. You think, whoa, that's, that's crazy. Well, then, next thing you know, over the next few weeks, even more things start to happen. You're starting to question what's going on. One morning, you woke up, and there were frogs covering all the houses, courtyards, and fields where you lived. Another day, gnats covered the land, so much so that they were covering all the people and animals. Another day, swarms of flies covered the land of Egypt, so much so that you couldn't even see through them. But what was even crazier about this one is that as the flies covered Egypt, not a single fly touched the land of Goshen where you were living with your family and the rest of the Israelites. Then another morning you wake up and all the livestock of Egypt have died, but none of your livestock have been touched. Then boils covered all the Egyptians so that people and animals were miserable with festering boils covering their body. Then a powerful storm strikes the land and hail rains down and destroys all the crops. Next, locusts come in such swarms that they consume everything that's left, which isn't much. Then one day, right in the middle of the day, you're doing your work and darkness covers the entire land of Egypt. But yet again, in Goshen, there is light. No person can do any of these things. So maybe Moses is right. Maybe God really does want to free you from Egypt. And you've heard rumors that maybe Pharaoh might let you guys go, but he hasn't yet. So you're eagerly waiting now. What's God going to do next? Maybe you're starting to believe Moses. And you don't have to wait long, although this time it's especially confusing. See, this time Moses and his brother Aaron come to you. They come to the Israelites. They publicly say, very specific instructions that you're to do for the next month. They tell you that you need to slaughter an unblemished one-year-old male lamb on the 14th day of the month. So you got to wait 14 more days. Then after slaughtering it, you need to eat the meat with your family that night, leaving nothing. Uh, you need to eat it with unleavened bread, bitter herbs. During the meal, you're supposed to be packed and dressed for travel. You're like, huh, that's weird. Also, you're told after killing this animal that you're to take the blood of the animal and paint it on the doorpost of the house. Is anybody thinking that this is a little odd? I, I'm just, I know a lot of you probably heard this story before, but if I'm 3,000 years ago hearing this, I'm like, what in the world is even happening right now? But that's what's commanded of you, so you do it. You do it exactly as you're told. And on that night that you're eating the meal, you go to bed, and then something incredible happens. See, on that night, the Lord struck down every firstborn male in Egypt. He struck down the firstborn male of every single home that the blood of the lamb was not painted on the doorpost. So you're sleeping when this happens, and you start to hear maybe some crying, some wails of people in the distance, and you get shaken awake. And you hear, get up. Pharaoh has set us free. Hurry. So remember, you're already packed. You grab your things, and you and well over 600,000 other Israelites start to make your way out of Egypt on foot. As you leave over the next week or so, God is continuing to do a miracle right in front of your eyes. As you walk during the day, he is leading you in a pillar of cloud. I don't really know what that looked like, but I bet it was magnificent. But probably even more magnificent was what happened at night. That pillar of cloud turned into a pillar of fire to lead over 600,000 people on foot. 
Finally, Moses tells everyone that God has instructed you all to turn back and to camp right near the Red Sea, where there's wilderness on one side of you and the Red Sea on the other. So you're camping there, and a short time passes, and you start to hear in the distance the rumbling of war chariots. You quickly turn, and you see hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of chariots and horses. The entire Egyptian army is coming after you. You look around, and there's nowhere to go. you got... Red Sea on one side, wilderness on the other side, army on the other side. It's certain death. You're standing there, you're starting to question, what, what in the world is happening? And you hear someone next to you cry out to Moses. He says, Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? You're terrified. Everyone's terrified. But Moses stands up in front of everyone. And he says, the Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. And sure enough, that pillar of cloud that's in front of you, leading you, moves from in front of you to behind you. It separates you from the Egyptian army that they can't get through. And then night falls, and that pillar of cloud turns to fire. So you're in the middle of the night, fire on one side, the Egyptian army on the other side of that. They can't get to you, Red Sea on the other side. God commands Moses to stretch out his arm over the Red Sea and a powerful wind comes and the Red Sea is separated that there's dry ground in the middle. I just, stop for a second think about it. If this was happening and you were there, you would be like, what in the world? This God that Moses is saying will take us as his people is separating the Red Sea that we can walk through. Who has ever done a thing like this? And so you walk through on dry ground. Well, finally, that pillar of fire moves out of the way for the Egyptian army to come chasing after you. They give chase into the Red Sea. And finally, we're at our passage for this morning. So I want you to turn with me to Exodus 14, 26 through 31. Okay, Exodus 14, 26 through 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant. Moses. I'm going to pray. Uh, Lord God, thank you so much for this morning. God, thank you for the beautiful mountains, the beautiful creation that you've given us to know you. God, I pray this morning uh, you'd let the reality that we have been freed in Christ, much like the Israelites were freed from Egypt. God, I pray that you'd let that reality sink in deep, that it would affect our day to day, that it would affect the rest of our lives, God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, so this morning, I'm going to aim or attempt to show you from the rest of Scripture, not all of it, uh, that would be a long message probably, but from the rest of the Scripture, how God has done something even more magnificent, even more glorious, and even more compelling than what he did for the Israelites in Egypt, ultimately by freeing you through his son, Jesus. And I'm going to do this by trying to answer two questions. The first question is, how have we gone from slavery to freedom? How have we gone from slavery to freedom? And the second question is, we're free, what now? We're free, what now? So first, how have we gone from slavery to freedom? To understand how we've gone from slavery to freedom, we first need to understand what we've been enslaved to. Right? For us, it might not be quite as obvious. For the Israelites in Egypt, you know who you're enslaved to when you go to work and somebody's whipping you for not doing your work. It's very obvious. For us, it's, it's not quite so obvious and from reading in the New Testament, we find that this language of slavery to freedom is used in two contexts, two types of slavery. So the first type of slavery is slavery to sin. Slavery to sin. Romans six fifteen through 18 says, What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone... As obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. So Paul's saying here is that unless you are a slave to righteousness, or a slave to obedience, meaning that you can't help but obey God because of what he's done for you in Christ, then you are a slave to your sin, meaning you can't help but sin. And what Paul means by sin, you need to understand the context in the verses, and you go back a few verses, Romans six twelve. it says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires what we see here is a really important principle about sin. It's that sin affects not just our actions, but it actually affects what we desire. What we desire. And I was trying to think of how to illustrate this point. Um, and I thought a good example of this would be something that's occurred so far in my marriage. So two months ago, I married Allie. And a lot of things have changed in my life over the last two months. But probably, well, not the most, but one significant change has been in what I eat. Uh, some of you who know me well, uh, yeah, I'm getting some nods here, know that especially before I got married, I, I, I was not the healthiest eater in the world. We'll just we'll say that. Uh, but since I've gotten married, uh, my wife, she, she tends to eat a lot healthier than I do. And so... I think, and this might be an exaggeration, but I don't think it's an exaggeration by that much. I think that there's a chance that I have eaten more vegetables in the last two months than I ate maybe in the five years of living outside of my parents' house before that. <laughs> so my actions have changed a lot, but you guys want to know what hasn't changed? My desire to eat horrible food. <laughs> <laughs> 
Not one bit. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I won this thing on Twitter that I got a 10-pound bag, not 10, like three pounds, I don't remember what, a heavy bag of beef jerky. <laughs> yep. And so one day, well, Allie was like, Trey, you shouldn't, you shouldn't eat all this at once. You're going to be hurting. And for lunch and dinner that day, I ate only beef jerky. That was <laughs> Um, last week, Allie and I were in Arizona for Christmas, and my grandma, I love my grandma, but every meal she comes out and she brings cookies and brownies and, and pie and everything, and I couldn't say no. It's like every single time. It's like, oh, just give me more of that. I love it. But I, what I'm realizing is that my actions have, to some degree, changed. Maybe not all the time, but some, sometimes I've, I've been eating better. But unless something actually comes in and changes what I desire, it remains the same. And I think sin works kind of like this. It can present itself outwardly in many ways. And in fact, you could look like a really good person, or you could look like a horrible person. But what sin does is it doesn't just affect your action, it affects what's inside of you. And so here's a question to ask yourself. Are the desires of your body, if you think inwardly, your desires, what you're living for, are the desires of your body sin? Another way maybe of thinking of this question is that are you willfully engaging in unrepentant, hidden sin? I was just reading a couple weeks ago in Psalm 19, 12, and 13. And in this psalm, it says, Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. Think of this. He's saying his unintentional sins, he understands that they need to be cleansed. He's not like discounting his unintentional sins. The times you sin, you don't even know you're in sin. So he's not discounting those. Those need to be cleansed too. But what is he saying? He's crying out to God saying, God, please keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. So maybe you're sitting here and you think, yeah, maybe I do fall to willful sin occasionally, whether it's um, sexual sin or, or greed or anger or whatever it might be, sin that you're aware, you know this is sin and you fall. But am I a slave to it? Am I, am I really a slave? And so here's a couple questions to ask if you're wondering if you're a slave to your sin. The first question is, have you tried to stop? If the answer to that is no, then you're probably a slave to it. But I, I would bet that many of you are probably sitting in here, if you're, if you're anything like me, you've probably tried to stop a lot. And so the second question is, how has that gone for you? As you've tried to stop this willful sin that you're engaging in, what has it looked like? Has it looked like a genuine remorse and repentance over the sin, leading you closer to our Savior, Jesus Christ? leading to genuine repentance and confession before brothers and sisters in Christ? Or has it led you to simply grit your teeth and say, I'm going to fight harder to stay away from this sin in the future to avoid looking bad, whether it's to others or to myself or whoever it might be. And if that's you, just gritting your teeth, I'm just going to work harder, you might actually be falling into the second kind of slavery that we see in the New Testament, which is slavery to the law. Slavery to the law. In Galatians 5, 1-4, it says, For freedom Christ set us free. 
Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. So this sort of slavery is a little bit different from the first. Here, instead of talking about slavery to our sinful desires or lusts that are within us, Paul uses the same language of slavery, saying for freedom, Christ has set us free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Same exact language, but he applies it to the law. He says, don't submit to a yoke of slavery. And then later it says, you who are trying to be justified by the law. So what does it mean to be a slave to the law? Well, instead of finding your worth or your identity or your value in your sinful desires, you're finding your worth or your identity or your value in your own good works or in your adherence to the law. This type of slavery can make someone look really similar to the genuine believer. And I'd say in this regard, it's far more sinister than the first type of slavery. See, this type of slavery can lead someone to join a college ministry. It leads someone to get connected with a Bible study. It leads someone to read their Bible. It leads someone to go to church. It leads someone to come to winter retreat and do all the other Christian things that they're expected to do, but there's one problem. All of these things for this person are done out of slavery, not freedom. Maybe you're someone who's trying to prove yourself to God. If you can just do these things, then I could prove myself to him. Or maybe you're someone who's trying to prove yourself to others or to your family or, or your friends. Oh, if I can just do all these things, then they'll affirm that I'm this great Christian and, and then I've made it. Or maybe you're just trying to do all these things to prove yourself to yourself. Oh, if I can just do all these things, then I will feel justified. Then I will appease my conscience or whatever it might be. But ultimately, you're not responding in freedom to the grace that you've received in Christ. So what are these two types of slavery? Slavery to sin and slavery to the law. What do they have in common? Well, right now I'm reading a book called You Are Not Your Own by Alan Noble. I'd highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't read it. But in this book, Noble argues against this cultural notion that we belong to ourselves, meaning we get to decide on our own identity. And one outworking of this cultural idea that we decide on our identity, we decide on who I am. No one can tell me who I am except for me. But one outworking of that is that if I have to decide on my own identity, on who I am, then I also have to decide on some sense of purpose or reason for why I live. Just think about this. If no one can tell me who I am, then no one can tell me why I'm here. But just stop for a second. Think in your life. Everybody is trying to figure out why they're here. Everyone. People come up with many options of why they live. They, maybe they live for money. If I can just set myself up with enough money that I can pass down to my kids and, and you know, generational wealth or whatever that is, maybe that's what I'm living for and that's the purpose of why I'm here. Maybe it's for my family. Man, life is all about family. And if I can just love my family and get married and have kids, then, then I've made it in life. Or maybe I'm living for success or for achievement or maybe for making the world a better place or something like that. But none of these things will ever satisfy. If you're living for family, 
Your family will not satisfy you. You will desire more and more from them. If you're living for making the world a better place, what about after you've done your uh, hours of community service and you look around and the world is still not a good place? (laughs) You will never, ever be satisfied. See, both slavery to sin and slavery to the law, they actually end up falling in this same category of self-justification or self-purpose. Here's what I mean by that. No one is a slave to sin because they love the sin itself. It just is a good example. Think about sexual sin. Nobody is addicted to sexual sin because they just love watching pornography. Have you ever heard someone say, man, I just love pornography? No, that's never, that's never been a thing. They're addicted to sexual sin because pornography points them to some future or external satisfaction. Whether it's comfort, oh, if I can just experience this experience, then I'll feel comfort and satisfaction. Or if I can just have this in the future, then I'll be satisfied. But it doesn't satisfy. Or think about someone who cheats on a test. Nobody cheats on a test because they love cheating on a test. <laughs> like I, you'd be crazy. You'd come back, oh, man, I got another high today. Cheating on another test. Man, what a good day that was. No, nobody does that. You cheat on a test because you desire some external satisfaction or worth, and maybe you find it in your grades, or you find it in um, some future career path that you think you have to get this grade to get on, or whatever it might be. It's way deeper than just the sin itself. Or think about slavery to the law. It's also just another form of this self-justification. See, instead of trying to find your worth or your satisfaction from your sin, you're trying to do it for yourself by going to church or doing all the Christian things. But either way, whether you're a slave to sin or whether you're a slave to the law, you are a slave to creating your own worth for the rest of your life, chasing after some hypothetical satisfaction that will never satisfy. You need something better. And here's where we finally get to the awe-inspiring truth of this morning, and that in Christ, we are no longer slaves. We are free. Look back at Exodus 14.31. It should be on the screen. It says, when Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. So how did Israel become free? Well, they saw the great power that the Lord used to save them from the Egyptians. They feared the Lord. They believed in him and they believed in his servant Moses. How do we become free? We see the great power that the Lord has used to save us from our sin. We fear the Lord. We believe in him, and we believe in his servant, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. It's the same. And what is the great power that the Lord has used to save us? See, when the Israelites believed in the great power that the Lord has used to save them, it was the Lord freeing them from Egypt. But what is the great power for us? Well, think back to last night. God raised Jesus, his son, from the dead, the firstborn among the dead, that by believing in him, we can have the confident hope that we too will one day be raised with him for all eternity. God has given us the story of all stories, the story that all stories point to, to show us the infinite power of his love for us to free us. And just... For a second, think back at the story of the exodus from Egypt. So after they're freed from Egypt, this Passover night, they run from Egypt, and God just does this crazy miracle. 
Every year, God gave them very specific commands to eat this Passover meal again to remember that night, to remember. They were commanded that um, during this meal they'd eat, or they'd have all these symbolism, uh, symbolic pieces of the meal, and every year they'd eat it. And about a thousand years later, after one year of eating it, another year of eating this meal, another year of eating this meal, about a thousand years later, during just another one of these annual meals, Jesus sat down at the head of the table and started partaking in this final meal with his disciples on the same night. During the meal, he took a cup of wine, which was uh, supposed to symbolize the blood of the lamb that was painted on the doorpost. He takes that cup, he lifts it up and says to his disciples, now when you drink this cup, you drink it in remembrance of me. Those disciples had to be confused. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? That's, that's the blood of the lamb that's on the doorpost to free us. But then later that night, Jesus' words became true. As Jesus' blood was poured out on the cross, the blood of our perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb, Jesus himself paid for our freedom. What is the great power of our freedom? It's Jesus. And he paid for it with his life. So our redemption, our freedom, it comes from Jesus. But we are free in Jesus. What does that mean for us now? So this is actually a really difficult question to answer. I'm I'm reading a a book right now on the history of the country of Haiti. Uh, It's a fascinating book, but... Uh, What I I learned from this book is that a couple hundred years ago, Haiti was the first country to successfully revolt. They were were a country of slaves. They were a French colony. They were the first colony and only colony in history to successfully revolt the slaves and and gain independence. So they're they're, their independent nation now, but they were slaves that rose up and were free. But what's interesting about the country of Haiti, many of you have probably heard of Haiti because of... um, mission organizations because of just the immense poverty that exists in Haiti. But what's interesting, before they were freed, Haiti was the most prosperous, the wealthiest colony that France owned. See, the ground and the country was perfect for harvesting sugar and coffee. They were exporting tons of it off the backs of slave-led plantations. Well, Haiti, after they achieved their freedom, they fought for it. They had received freedom, and they're now looking at what should we do with this freedom. You know what they did with their freedom? The slaves went to the plantations, and they burned them to the ground. And I don't blame them. Why would you want to go back and keep working the same jobs that you were working, reminding you of your slavery? But had they just gone back to working those plantations, led on them by themselves, they would be extremely prosperous today, but they didn't, and I don't blame them for that. But now, 200 years later, after constant struggle for control, power, and unstable government, continuous lack of clear vision of how to use their freedom, Haiti is consistently ranked as one of the least prosperous nations in the world. They still don't know what to do with their freedom. And looking back at the story of the Exodus, the Israelites freed from Egypt, afterwards we see the same kind of struggle. See, just two chapters after God drowns the entire Egyptian army, one of the craziest miracles ever that happened on the earth. Here's what we see happen. 
in Exodus 16, 2-3. The entire Israelite community, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Right after they're freed, they say, Oh, if only we could just return to our slavery. So the question is, how should we operate now that we have been set free in Christ? And we should do what the Israelites should have done, and later at times did do. We should trust the God who saved us, and we should follow the servant that he's used to save us. So the Israelites eventually did follow Moses, and later Joshua, as God used them to lead Israel into the promised land. They followed the servant that God gave them. And so should we follow our Savior and Deliverer that God has given us, Jesus. Romans 12, 1 and 2, says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. In view of the mercies of God, in the view of your freedom that you've received through the great power that God has done for you in Christ, present your body as a living sacrifice to your Savior. This is true worship. You have been freed from your sin, freed from the law, freed from your inability to justify yourself because Jesus has justified you. He has made you righteous apart from the law and he has set you free from your sin. How should we use that freedom as a sacrifice to the one who saved us? All to the praise and to the glory of our God. And so just to close today, I have two questions I'm going to put up on the screen. and You can write them down. And I would just encourage you, consider these questions. Maybe today as you're um, having a quiet time or as you're uh, maybe having a tie-down later, whatever it might be, just consider these two questions. First question is this. Have you experienced genuine freedom in Jesus? Have you experienced genuine freedom in Jesus? And the second question is, are there any ways in which you are using the freedom that you've received from Jesus to return to your former slavery? Are there any ways in which you are using the freedom that you've received from Jesus to return to your former slavery? Think about that. The Israelites, they were freed, and they say, let's, let's go back to our slavery. Are there any ways in which you're doing the same thing? Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.